The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone. So let's start, start the questions uh, uh, for this evening. Uh, we are deep, but this is a lot of questions. <laughs> it's always nice that people have an interest, so it's actually nice. It's good. Uh, so please don't feel shy about asking questions. Uh. Okay, question number one. This is a geography question. Okay. Uh, is Vesali the same place as Vaishali, the place where the women came into the Sangha? Yes, it is. Vaishali is the Sanskrit uh, version of the word, and Vesali is the Pali version. So that's exactly right. Your spelling is very good. Vesali with a long A and everything is very, I'm very impressed with that actually. Uh, so that is, uh, that's very good. Uh, and that is the place where uh, Mahapajapati Gotami, who was the Buddha's aunt, uh, she came to the Buddha and she asked him whether uh, women could please go forth in the um, in the teachings of the Buddha, in the Buddhist teachings. Uh, and the Buddha initially said no, and then Ananda said, you know, it, it might be a good idea. Then event eventually the Buddha said yes. Uh, so um, uh, that's what, hap what is supposed to have happened there. Exactly what happened in terms of history is always going to remain a bit obscure because uh, these stories have been, you know, are... These are stories, uh, and they are narratives, and they uh, come, come down in different versions, uh, and all the different versions, they vary a little bit. Uh, so exactly what happened, we probably will never know, but something like that seems to have happened. So that's quite right. Okay. <clears throat> How do I resolve the conflict between not grasping and actively trying to generate joy here? If there is no joy, sometimes I feel I have to interrupt myself, commenting on my own state. Does desire for joy lead to suffering? Um, it's good to avoid the desire for joy. It's more like understanding that joy is a necessary aspect of the practice. So you practice, you are content with whatever you have. But there comes a point when you realize that a bit of joy is necessary for the meditation to carry forward properly here. Yeah, so it's not so much about kind of uh, wanting it. It's very hard not to want it at all, perhaps. Uh, but the desire should be a very, very small one. Uh, so you just uh, uh, you go with the process. And when you know the time is right, when you feel peaceful, you feel relaxed, you feel at ease, uh, you have a degree of clarity, maybe you see the breath quite clear, and all of these kind of things. Uh, that's what you, when you kind of nudge the mind a little bit. Uh, don't think of it so much as... Uh, grasping or actively trying to generate you're not actually trying very much at all it's just like a nudge yeah a tiny little nudge of the mind a, a tiny little perception uh, giving rise to just uh, you know very gently uh, allowing some positive uh, experiences or perception to arise uh, just like thinking whoa it's so nice to be here. You don't even think that. You just feel that in a sense. Yeah, You feel the peace. You feel the goodwill in the room of the people around you. You feel the positive energy. And simply by feeling that, you already start to experience some kind of gladness inside of you. Or you just feel that you are living well. You know that you're living well. You don't have to you know, actively think a lot. It's more like just inclining your mind in that direction. That's what I mean by nudging the mind, yeah? Just nudging very gently. And if nothing happens, let it be. Don't try and try and try. Let it be. And then continue with the peace. And then after a while, you can nudge a little bit again, yeah? It's a very uh, gentle process. And as you gradually come to understand how it works, you, you understand the right time 
to do the nudging the right time to do these various things. So it's very little activity that is required when we talk about the uh, Chaganusati and Silanusati, which are the recollections of uh, our virtue and our generosity in the past. Uh, it is not a very active kind of thing again. Uh, it's more like a very gentle uh, leaning of the mind in that direction that allows these things to arise. Because if you have lived well, uh, it is actually very close to your heart already. Uh, it is not something that you have to really try very hard to give rise to. It happens almost automatically here. Uh. Does desire for joy lead to suffering? It can do, right? Too much desire for joy can lead to suffering. Yeah. So you have to have the joy without too much desire. Yeah. So, joy can lead to suffering. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Okay, next one. Is reading and writing a distraction from the task at hand? Does collapsing thoughts into language obscure a clear knowing? Yeah. Um. Yes, thinking does certainly obscure clear knowing because clear knowing is something that is pre-verbal. Yeah, one of the things that you will probably have not noticed in your own life is that uh, sometimes if you have a problem you want to resolve, you want to sort out, uh, and then you think about it, uh, the more you think about it, the more you think yourself into knots and you can't find a solution. Uh, and you think about the same thing again and again and again, going round and round, churning on inside your head. Uh, and you think you are resolving it, but actually you're not going anywhere at all, just going around in circles very often. Huh? Have you noticed that in your life? Huh? Yeah? <laughs> it would be a big surprise if you hadn't, because this, I think, is a pretty universal experience. Huh? So what you do instead, you actually step back. Huh? Yeah? You allow the thoughts to die down, huh? and sometimes all you have to do is distract yourself a little bit, do something else, and suddenly the answer comes to you. Huh? The answer doesn't come when you think about things. The answer comes when the mind becomes peaceful. You stop thinking about it and suddenly it is almost like an intuition arises inside of you and you know the solution to the problem that you, uh, that you are trying to seek a solution to. Yeah, so it's this kind of intuitive thing that arises inside of you and intuition is often far more powerful than thinking. Thinking just kind of leads you around and around and thinking should actually be based on that intuition. It's you know clear knowing when intuition is what I mean by kind of the knowing that comes st uh, straight to you. And then the thinking should be based on that. Uh, and if the thinking is based on that, usually it's good thinking. Uh, uh, but when the thinking just kind of carries on, then it is not very uh, useful at all. Uh, a little bit of thinking is required. Uh, yeah, the Buddha must have done quite a bit of thinking uh, because he... You know, he, he kind of, this big collection of suttas all come from the Buddha. He must have thought it all out in his head. Yeah, so thinking is not evil, but you have to know the right time to think and then the wrong time to think, and then you get it right. So wait with the thinking till afterwards. After you come out of your meditation, then you can think, and then you can reflect on what happened. In the meditation, just chill. That's the right way. It's good, isn't it? Just all you have to do is chill. That's pretty, pretty cool, if you ask me here. So, uh, there you are. Okay. Next one. Uh, you mentioned ill will is worse than desire. Is the judgmental mind closely connected with ill will? I.e., the person did this. So this person does not seem to be a good person, judging and disliking a person. Uh, yes, there is a close connection between judgment and ill will. Absolutely. Uh, unless you judge people in a positive way, in which case, of course, there's no problem. But usually judgments tend to be negative. 
And uh, when you see the negative thing in people, uh, it is something that you have a sense of, uh, uh, you know, you don't like that. There's a sense of uh, um, something, uh, uh, you don't want it basically. And because you don't want it, uh, it tends to lead to kind of irritation or ill will afterwards. So judgment is basically not a good idea. And uh, 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 there are so many reasons why judgment actually is bad. One of the reasons is simply that, you know, always remember people are conditioned to be what they are. They don't have much choice, yeah? And if people haven't got much choice, how can you judge them? If people are what they are because someone said to me today, oh, they had a teenager who was difficult and they had an argument with a teenager. Well, that's the nature of teenagers. They are difficult. When I was a teenager, I was difficult. Yeah, ask my mother and she will say, oh, yeah, so difficult. (laughs) So it is the nature of teenagers. And if teenagers are not difficult, usually it's a bad sign because they need to express their individuality. They are kind of growing up, trying to find their sense of identity in the world. They should be a bit difficult. And if they're not, that's when you have a cause for worry, not if they are difficult. So rejoice in your teenager's difficulty if you have a teenager. Yeah, Then you turn the whole thing upside down. Instead of feeling negative about it, you feel positive about it. Yay, my teenagers are being difficult. Hooray! Yeah, this is the right, this is kind of a very positive way of thinking about things. So don't judge people because in the end we can't judge other people. People are conditioned, they are what they are because of we don't know what. Judgment is always the wrong way around. Instead, see whatever good qualities are there and rejoice in that. It's a far more conducive way of doing things than being than being judgmental. And uh, I think there is a saying somewhere, something like, uh, you know, if you, when you look back on your life, you uh, you have this feeling that you always judge people too harshly. Uh, you should have been more charitable in the way you look at other people. Uh, yeah. In the retrospect, we realize we're too too judgmental. Uh, we should have been far more charitable. Uh, so take that lesson on board straight away. Uh, don't judge. Uh, yeah. Instead, be charitable. Uh. Okay. Dear Ajahn, in Western Buddhist magazine, the tricycle from the USA, one writer, uh, one writer whose religious goals are about idealism, a writer wrote religious goals about idealism, though one can never achieve this in realism. Uh, uh, these examples was qualities of the Bodhisattva, though one can walk towards it like walking towards the horizon, uh, knowing one will never get there. Uh, appreciate your comments. Uh, <laughs> okay, so it is um, what you're saying is that you have a kind of ideal, but it is an ideal that you can never actually achieve. Uh, so you kind of it's just an idea that you have in your mind, so something to aspire for. Uh, to move towards that's kind of the uh, the point here it seems uh, uh, so um, I, I would say that uh, in Buddhist the uh, Buddhism the idea is that all the goals that we have are actually achievable yeah if it is a right goal it actually is achievable uh, and as far as the Bodhisattva ideal concerned I tend to agree it may not be achievable but that is because it is the wrong goal. Yeah, that's why it is not achievable. Huh? 
Yeah, we should not be bodhisattvas. And the Buddha never said we should be bodhisattvas. He said we should, if anything, we should just practice towards awakening. And awakening is, means being an arahant. So that I think is the problem there. But certainly, arahantship become is achievable. Yeah, as long as you are walking towards it, as long as you're making progress, one day you have to get there. Yeah, they say a journey of a thousand steps begins with the first step. Yeah, so you take one step, you're already on the way. As long as you're making progress, eventually you have to get there because that is the nature of progress. So if a goal really is unachievable, it means that even if you are making progress, you can't get there. It means that it is not a real goal. That's what it means. Yeah, so as long as you are heading in the right direction, you have to get there one day. And that is all you need to ask yourself on the Buddhist path is, am I making progress or not? Are my good qualities increasing and my bad qualities declining? If you feel that after three days or seven days here at, in Anglesey that you are more angry than you have ever been before, <laughs> then please don't come back again. Yeah, then <laughs> it may not work for you. But if you find yourself being a bit more gentle, a bit more mindful, then you know you're heading in the right direction. And that is what you should ask yourself always on the Buddhist path. Is my mindfulness becoming established? Am I becoming a more gentle and kind person? Is my, my desires and anger, are they going down? And if that is what is happening in your life, yeah, over long term, then you're heading in the right direction. And eventually, you will get to the goal. You will get to, uh, you know, the a final awakening experience. Yeah? And on the way, you experience so much happiness on the way, so much joy, so much excitement, so much insight, so much understanding of the nature of reality. Yeah, it's a really cool path, the Buddhist path, because you get everything you ever wanted on this path, and it should happen as you are practicing towards the goal. So that is my comment. So, uh, yeah... I never read these magazines, but uh, anyway, uh, so sometimes they're... Uh, yeah, anyway, I prefer the word of the Buddha compared to the word of tricycle, but anyway. <laughs> okay, next one. What should I have on an altar? The teachings are very poetic. Are there any poetry books or uh, Buddhist poets? Uh Okay, what should I have on an altar? Is that, I guess these are different questions, perhaps. On an altar, you can have whatever inspires you. Yeah, so if you have a nice, it's nice to have a nice Buddha statue in your house because a Buddha statue, if it is a nice one, it is supposed to kind of emanate the qualities of the Buddha. If the Buddha statue is nice, it will have like a kind of peaceful smile, yeah, a sense of happiness on it, a sense of the qualities of the Buddha coming out of it. That's kind of the purpose of these statues, to remind you of where you are heading and what you're supposed to be practicing yourself. That is the right kind of Buddha statue. And that is why some of the Buddha statues are going to talk to you and they're going to be right, others are not. And one of the Buddha statues that we have in, uh, in Perth, in uh, Buddhist to Western Australia, is a Buddha statue which is a copy of the very famous Buddha statue found in Saranath in India. If you go to the museum in the Deer Park in Saranath, uh, there's a very famous Buddha statue in there, which uh, uh, is, has a, is a very beautiful, very peaceful, very subtle smile on his face. Uh, and uh, it's a kind of statue that makes you happy when you're in his presence. Uh, at least it does for many people. Maybe not for you, so you find your own statue. 
So that is what you have on the altar, yeah? And then you can have some flowers there. You can have anything that makes you feel at ease, makes you feel peaceful, makes you feel good. That's the most important thing here. All of these things are things that are supposed to elevate us and make it easy to practice the path, yeah? If it makes you a better person, it's a good thing here. Uh, the teachings are very poetic. Are there any poetry books or Buddhist poets? There are quite a few poetry books. And uh, the main poetry books uh, in, uh, that are also the word of the Buddha is like the Dhammapada, for example. I'm sure many of you will have heard about the Dhammapada, a very famous book of poetry. And it's very inspiring. A lot of the poetry there is so uplifting. So have the Dhammapada on your little night table next to your bed at night. The last thing you do at night, read a couple of verses of Dhammapada. Don't check your iPhone the last thing at night. <laughs> That's the last thing you should do, yeah? Unless the Dhammapada is on your iPhone, in which case it is okay, yeah? Then it's okay. But otherwise, don't check your iPhone. Take your verse from Dhammapada, and then when you do that, you feel kind of, you feel uplifted as you're about to fall asleep. You feel joyous, yeah? And you sleep so much better as a consequence. You wake up in the morning, you have energy when you wake up, you sit down to meditate, and wow, everything is so much better as a consequence. So Dhammapada is one. Another nice book of verses is the Terigata and the Teragata. And this is the ancient verses of the ancient Arahant nuns and monks, yeah, like all the way back to the time of the Buddha. And these are also often very uplifting and very beautiful. And uh, they are often about the struggle that they had, yeah, the struggle that they had in lay life, then the giving up of the lay life, becoming a monastic, and then achieving the awakening experience after that. And you can recognize yourself in there, yeah, you can see the same problem that they had are the problems that you have, and they become arahants for goodness sake, yeah. If they could become arahants, so can you, that's the kind of inspiration you get when you read these beautiful verses uh, going back two and a half thousand years. Uh. Then there is a book called the uh, Sutta Nipata, which is full of also ancient verses, uh, uh, many of them probably going back to the time of the Buddha. And uh, also very inspiring, there is a book called the Udana, there's a book called the Itivuttaka. Uh, can you remember all these things? Uh, who are you? <laughs> if you can't remember all these things, see me later, I'll write all of these things down for you. Uh. And these are verses that all relate to, directly to the Buddha or to the ancient Buddhism itself. But of course, there are also more modern poets. I wouldn't really recommend them because a lot of that is much more, it's more kind of, it's not as inspiring. It's not so much Dhamma, it's more like praising the Buddha and that sort of stuff, but often not to the same and not the same quality of verses that you find there. One of the famous ancient Buddhist poets was a poet called Ashwagosa. And Ashwagosa is supposed to be one of the most famous poets of India, and he was a Buddhist. And he wrote all these Buddhist poems praising the Buddha, that kind of thing. But it doesn't have the same quality, it doesn't have the same depth as you find in the early Buddhist verses, because he was just a poet. He didn't really understand what he was writing about. So try that and see what happens. Okay, Ajahn, I am confused. Okay, welcome to the club. There's many here, many like that. I'm <laughs> about all the different Buddhas. Okay, where, when, invisible. Okay, all the different Buddhas, where, when, invisible. Um, yes, so the different Buddhas are, the different Buddhas are, uh, 
the point of a Buddha is that the Buddha is like a natural principle that arises in the world every now and again. Every now and again you have a person who has the right qualities, yeah, and all the qualities come together that enable them to make the breakthrough to become a Buddha. It is very, very rare because it is so hard. It is so hard because we have a sense of self and you have to have the ability to see through the sense of self. And unless you have a teacher, it is incredibly hard. I always like to point out to people that all of us here, we have all the Dhamma on a plate given to us and by the Buddha, and still it's hard enough. Yeah, Still it's difficult enough to see all of these things. Now, here you are, you have to do this without a teacher. That's what the Buddha does. Now, if it is difficult... With a teacher, imagine how hard it is without a teacher. And that's what you do to become a Buddha. And that's why it is so rare that you have Buddhas arising in the world. But every now and again, someone is able to do this. And then they come through and they actually achieve that insight, that understanding of the nature of reality, which is what the insight of the Buddha is all about. So where... Wherever, yeah, it is when you read the suttas, it gives the impression that it always happens in India. That's what they said because I think India was really the only country they considered civilized. Yeah, it's always like that. We are, tend to be very, uh, we tend to be very kind of uh, self-centered. Yeah, our culture is the center of the universe. We are the only civilized culture. Everyone else are barbarians. Uh, and that's how we tend to look at the world. Yeah, every culture has that kind of uh, self-centeredness, if you like, to it. So in the suttas, they say that the Buddha arises in India. But I think what that means is that wherever the Buddha arises, that country is called India. Yeah, That's what I think it means. So that's kind of the right way of thinking about it. So that's why the Buddha always arises in India, because of that. <laughs> so, but of course, the problem is that for the Buddha to be able to arise, you have to have certain conditions, have to be there. Yeah, and uh, it has to be fairly conducive. It's difficult enough as it is already. So you have to have a society that uh, I think probably appreciates ascetics, uh, that has a culture of samanas. The samanas are the people who go forth uh, and practice the path. Uh, yeah, practice uh, uh, a lifestyle to achieve awakening or whatever it is. Uh, you have to have a society that appreciates that, that supports that kind of people. Ideally, you have a society where people are already practicing samadhi, because if you have samadhi already, it means that you are fairly close to awakening. Yeah? So you have to have a certain cause and conditions. The more those cause and conditions come together, the more likely that someone will actually be able to achieve awakening. So a society a little bit like ancient India would have been very conducive because in ancient India they had respect for people who went forth from ordinary society. You already had people practicing samadhi who already had gone a long way on the path. So many of these causes and conditions were already in place and that I think made it possible. So that is the kind of place you would expect to find Buddhas. The chance of finding Buddhas you know, in Australia are pretty slim, yeah, because it's a very kind of a, it's not that kind of culture, yeah. If when I walk around as a monk, people just kind of turn away and they don't want to have anything to do with me. They kind of get scared or something. They're fright, frightened of monastics, and once they get to know you, they kind of appreciate you. But when I go on the plane, nobody talks to me. They kind of look away because they <laughs> they're a little bit afraid of me. Yeah, who, who is this? Who is this weirdo? And uh, so not so likely in Australia, in Australia, perhaps, or anywhere else in the Western world, because uh, people are not used to uh, Buddhist monastics. When? Yeah, when? That's the big question. 
if we knew when it was going to happen, the next Buddha arose, then we could just chill and wait for the Buddha to arise and then we could kind of practice the path. But we don't know that. Yeah? And this is part of the problem. So when the, uh, you read about the future Buddha Maitreya, yeah, it's just a name taken out of thin air, there will be a future Buddha. We don't know what he's going to be called. Is it going to be called Maitreya? Actually, we don't know that. It's just a, just a word, just another word, which means Buddha, really. Actually, it means metta, but you know, in this context, it kind of means Buddha. And we have no idea when the Buddha, this Buddha is going to come. You have no idea whether you're going to be around, yeah? whether you're going to be here, whether you're going to understand the teaching, or anything like that. So because of that, don't wait for the next Buddha. Now is the opportunity. Yeah? We have the teachings now, and to kind of live a life where we are looking forward to a future Buddha, it is just being silly, because now you have the teachings. Now you have the opportunity. Now is the right time to make the effort. It is a little bit disrespectful, I feel, to pay too much attention to future Buddhas uh, when we already have the teachings of the present Buddha right here and now. Uh, that is what we should be looking to. Uh. Invisible. Well, the future Buddhas are, or uh, the Buddhas are they invisible? Uh, well, they, the Buddhas arise, uh, yeah, and then they kind of, they are like a, a meteor, uh, meteor which kind of goes through the sky, lights up the sky, uh, and then they kind of disappear, and then they're gone. Uh. That's the Buddhas, uh, the Buddhas are these shining lights that last for a short time and then they disappear. And before they become Buddhas, they are not Buddhas. So Buddha is only something which lasts a very short time. So they're not really invisible. They are gone when they die. That's it. Okay. Okay, next one. Dear Ajahn, please explain practice of full focus and mindfulness, giving examples in meditation and ordinary life. Thank you. Uh, yes, I shall do that, but not now, because we're coming to the full focus and mindfulness tomorrow. Yeah, so please stay tomorrow, don't leave. And if you're here, you will hear about the four focuses of mindfulness. Dear Ajahn, number two, what is emptiness? Are there different meanings and interpretations of this world in Buddhism? Thank you. There are different interpretations of this word, word, but the only interpretation that I am, uh, find interesting is the interpretation you find in the suttas. And what you find in the suttas is that emptiness is synonymous with the idea of non-self. Yeah, so non-self or emptiness means empty of a self and empty of anything belonging to a self. So what does it mean? That is, what does non-self mean? It means that when you look inside of yourself, you cannot find anything permanent. You cannot find any essence, which is the real you. Yeah, that's what it means. Things are always changing, moving around. There's nothing there that you can grasp onto. So that is the meaning of emptiness. And uh, the, one of the ways that the emptiness is explained in the suttas, uh, you have what is called the Chula Sunyata Sutta, the shorter sutta on emptiness, uh, and uh, it explains to you how you can use the idea of emptiness as a meditation object. Yeah, so uh, it says when you go to the forest, uh, yeah, the, uh, the perception of forest that we have here, you look outside, you see the forest, uh, and that perception of forest is empty of all the distractions of the city life. Uh, as it says in the suttas, there are no elephants. Yeah? So there are no elephants in the forest here. Huh? Is that good? Huh? 
Yeah, no elephants. Maybe that would be cool to have some elephants in there. But uh, uh, in ancient India, elephants were the things that you found in the city. Yeah, there were elephants and horses and cows and all these kind of things. Uh, and for that reason, it was kind of nice and quiet when there were no elephants around. Uh, so here, that doesn't quite quite work, perhaps in the same way. <laughs> but uh, it is a peaceful absence of something. Uh, and then you take that to the next level. Yeah, You start watching the breath, for example. And when you start watching the breath, uh, that perception of the breath is empty of the forest. Yeah, And then you take it deeper, and the breath starts to disappear. Yeah, And then the, the perception you have then is just one of peace. Maybe just the nimitta is, is a perception empty of the breath. And then you take it further and further and further. And as you do that, you descend into a more and more empty experience. There's less and less things going on until eventually you reach the supreme emptiness when everything is gone. That's kind of the, uh, the purpose of this. Yeah, That's kind of where we're heading here. So does that sound scary? Everything is gone? Well, it may sound scary. But remember that the way to think about this is to uh, enjoy every little emptiness that you get on this path. Uh, every time something disappears, uh, notice what is happening. Uh, and what is happening is that you feel good. Things are gone, you feel happy about it. Yeah, because actually it's beautiful when things disappear. And then you extrapolate from that uh, and you realize that the more things disappear, uh, the more happy you're going to be here. Uh. This is the, it's a beautiful path. It's not scary at all. It's only because we have to use certain words to explain it. It sounds scary, but actually it's a wonderful, wonderful path as you deepen your meditation experience. Okay. <clears throat> so if I don't explain mindfulness properly tomorrow according to how you, uh, what you're asking here, then please ask again uh, later on, and I will do it later on. Dear Ajahn, what is the Buddhist definition of death? <laughs> is it where the heart stops or when consciousness leaves the body? Or is it something else? Uh, how does meditation help the time of death? Uh, thank you. Uh, so what is the Buddhist definition of death? Uh, it is the time when you move from one life to the next one, yeah. The time, the time when this life comes to an end, when your consciousness is no longer bound to this particular realm, that is the time of death. So, it is. Is it when the heart stops? Uh, if the if consciousness leaves the body, you are dead. If consciousness is still attached to the body somehow, you're still not really dead from a Buddhist perspective. Yeah, because the whole point of death is that you move away from this existence and then you maybe you move on to an intermediate stage yeah, and then you move on to the future existence. Or either that or you move straight into the next existence. So that is what death is really. And as long as you are holding on to the body, even if your heart has stopped or even if you are brain dead, you're not really fully, fully passed away yet. How does meditation help at the time of death? Death. Well, death is a uh, the prob the biggest problem with death is that uh, uh, we are attached to the things of the world, uh, yeah, and in particular we are attached to our physical body. Uh, so because of that, if you are able to let go of things in your meditation practice, uh, you're able to become very peaceful and calm, let go of the world around you, even let go of the body. It means that when you are on your deathbed, you can let go of those things. Death is going to be very, very easy for you. 
Because all you do is just flow on, yeah? It's a bit like being in meditation practice, it's just that you let go a little bit more thoroughly. You can't come back again, that's all it means. But it's the same kind of letting go, yeah? Which is kind of the nice thing. So you just let go, bang, and then you're going to float off, and that's it. And then you're kind of moving on into the future. For most people, for at least for people who are good people, death is actually a very beautiful thing. Because you're letting go of something that is often very sick, very heavy, very deteriorated through aging or whatever it is. The body becomes a pain after a while. The older you get, the worse it becomes. So when you're letting go of the body, for most people, it's a very beautiful experience where you feel light, you feel at ease. You realize you had no idea how heavy and how difficult this body was. But now you understand, okay, whew, good riddance, okay, and goodbye body, and then you move on into the future. And then you take up a new body. You think, oh no, I just got rid of the old one. <laughs> this is the problem, yeah, this is the problem with rebirth. So make sure you don't take up a new one. That's kind of the, the lesson in that <laughs> Dear Ajahn, how does conscious ex- consciousness experience outside the body uh, when there are no senses? So the idea is that the senses are not dependent on the physical body. And uh, when, you, uh, when you die, when you kind of have a near-death experience or something like that, uh, it is as if you are drawing out an alternative body from the body you have. The bodies come in various degrees of coarseness. Uh, yeah? So you, just because you haven't got this body, you still have a body. It's just a more refined body. And that more refined body has senses, except that they are more refined. So the senses are still there. It's just not these physical senses that you have now. And that's why you can have a near-death experience and you can still experience the world. You can still see things. You can still hear sounds because you have that more refined body instead. In the suttas, it is, it is compared to an idea, compared to like a snake. Yeah, A snake that sheds its skin. The skin is shed, but the snake is pretty much the same as before. Yeah, you kind of drawn one body out of the other one. Or it's like a straw. Sometimes you can pull a straw out of the other one. And the sheath, the kind of outer straw, you can throw it out. And then the inner straw is pretty much like the outer one. But so you have drawn something out of something else. In the same way, you can draw a more refined body out of the gross physical body. And that's why you have things like astral traveling, that kind of stuff, yeah? It's, that's where it comes from. And when you do astral traveling, which is just a kind of a new age word for things that we talk about in the suttas anyway, basically it's the same body that you take with you when you do these kind of things. Okay. Ajahn, can I use the 32 parts of the body as a method to cease eye attachments? I fall for sensory attractions so often. (laughs) Um, Yes, uh, you can do that. I, I should say, first of all, it is not 32 parts of the body. It is 31 parts of the body. Yeah, important distinction, right? 31, not 32. Is that an important distinction, you think? 31, 32, well, why am I even mentioning this? And the reason I'm mentioning this is because uh, uh, 31 parts of the body is actually what you find in the suttas. Uh, 32 parts of the body is what you find in the Visuddhimagga. And everybody talks about 32 parts of the body because everybody reads the commentaries uh, and nobody reads the suttas. Uh, So straight away, I know where you have learned things from. I know that you are a 
commentary person. Yeah, you probably don't even know it yourself. You don't even know it yourself, probably, because you have been taught this by someone else. But that's really it. Shows you the influence of the commentaries on the Buddhist world. Yeah, straight away you can see the influence right there. Yeah? But of course, it doesn't matter whether you have 31 or 32. It's irrelevant. I'm just pointing it out to show you the influence of the commentaries. Yeah? So can you use that as a method to make eye attachments cease? Yes, you can use that uh, to make it cease, but uh, uh, it is not easy. I would uh, say that it really depends on the kind of life you live. If you live a life as a very committed Buddhist, uh, and maybe you live as a single person, you're not in a relationship or anything like that, uh, then these things become useful tools. Uh, but if you live a fairly ordinary life as a Buddhist, uh, and you have a relationship with someone else and all of this, uh, then using the 31 parts of the body is not really going to cut much ice. Uh, why? Because already there is that attachment there. There is the involvement with sensual pleasures. And if there is the involvement with sensual pleasures on the one hand, and you try to get rid of them with the 31 parts of the body on the other hand, the sensual pleasures are always going to win out, because that attraction is always going to be there. So I would say, instead of worrying too much about that, Instead, worry about uh, just keeping your precepts, being kind in life, uh, uh, reducing your ill will, reducing that sort of thing. Uh, and as you do that, the attachments will be reduced regardless. Uh, they will still come down simply by doing that much. Uh, yeah? So make that the focus instead of focusing on the 31 parts of the body. 31 parts of the body, if you live a completely celibate life, uh, if you are a monastic, that sort of thing, uh, it can be useful. Uh, but for most lay people, I would not really recommend it. Uh, it just doesn't really get you anywhere. And it also gets you a bit grumpy. Yeah? 31 parts of the body is not a very joyful kind of meditation, uh, usually. Uh, it can actually be, if it really works, it can be joyful, but generally speaking, it is not, uh, because it goes too much against the grain. It's too hard to do, usually. Uh. So uh, if you fall for sensory attraction so often, uh, don't worry too much about that. Uh, yeah? Don't be too concerned about it. Do the other parts of the practice instead. Uh, and if you can do that, if you're able just to reduce your ill will a little bit more uh, and just to be a little bit more kind and generous in your life, uh, then you're doing, making really good progress already. Uh. Dear Ajahn Bob Marley, <laughs> Bob Marley. Um, that was uh, when I uh, I took a phone call uh, one day in uh, in my, our monastery in Perth, uh, and I said, "Oh, this is this is Brahmali speaking. What, Bob Marley?" <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's what the that's what the person said, <laughs> and that's why someone has called me here, dear Ajahn Bob Marley. So that's really uh, that's good. You have <laughs> okay. So. Uh, Please differentiate between Samma Ditti and Ujjuka Ditti. Thank you and much metta. Uh, so th these are two Pali words, Samma Ditti, which is the first part of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, and Ujjuka Ditti. Ujjuka Ditti is a word that is found in certain places in the suttas, uh, in particular in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, uh, not in the Sutta, but in the Satipatthana Sangyutta. And it is used as one of the foundations for Satipatthana practice. And Ujrakaditi means something like straight view. Samaditi means right view. What is the difference between these? And the difference, I think, is very small. Yeah, it is not really all that great. 
The main difference is that Ujrukadite is more preliminary, whereas Samadite is more a, a complete right view. So Ujrukadite is uh, something that you you need even to get started with your meditation practice to be properly mindful to enable you to practice the meditation properly. Uh, yeah, you need to kind of prioritize the meditation. You need to know what is valuable valuable in life, uh, and this has all to do with Ujrukadite, not to. Um, be too concerned about the sensory existence, uh, but more concerned about spiritual development. Uh, whereas samadhiti, it can also mean that, uh, but samadhiti often means the right view of the noble ones, uh, yeah, the insight into the four noble truths uh, and these kind of things. Uh, that is what samadhiti often refers to. Not always, but often it does that. Uh. So in some ways the two are synonymous, uh, and in some ways they also have as a different difference of level there between the two. Uh. One of the nice things about the suttas uh, is that the Buddha often uses different words to refer to the same thing. Uh. And the reason why he does that is because different words give a slightly different angle from which to understand a particular concept. Yeah, so samadhiti, right view, means the view that is in accordance with reality. You're seeing the word, world as it actually is, yeah? instead of being deluded and blind. Okay, this is the, world, the way the world is, and you look upon the world in that way. Ujrukaditi, ujruka means straight, so it has a very similar idea of straight view. It is straight because, again, it accords with the reality of things. Yeah? That's why it is straight. So it gives a slightly different angle on this. Uh, Bhante, what evidence is there to support the theory of rebirth? Uh, Okay, Uh, so the evidence for rebirth is... uh, uh, The best evidence for rebirth, in my opinion, is that the Buddha said there is rebirth. Yeah? That's, to me, that's good enough. I, I don't really need much more than that. If the Buddha said so, well, there must be some, probably some truth to it. Uh, why would the Buddha say so if there wasn't really some truth to it? Uh, I have enough confidence in the Buddha's teachings uh, to uh, actually believe it if the Buddha said so. It doesn't mean I necessarily know it, uh, because knowing is different from having confidence, uh, but I certainly have confidence in rebirth. Uh, uh, knowledge and absolute certainty is, of course, a different matter uh, uh, but I regard the Buddha saying so as what I would call uh, it is a, uh, uh, yeah it is basically a, a kind of uh, you know kind of anecdotal evidence if you like it's anecdotes coming from the Buddha the Buddha says it exists and therefore you take it as as a reality but it's not just the Buddha that says there is rebirth you will find many people in the present day yeah monastics or perhaps some lay people who had profound meditation experiences and they will tell you that there is rebirth and when someone you have confidence in tells you to your face that there is rebirth then it's very hard to deny it completely yeah because you you kind of it opens up your mind in a sense a little bit it kind of really there is rebirth okay i better you know i better kind of at least have an open mind about this otherwise i'm just being stupid and this has happened to me on a few occasions they look at you and say there is rebirth yeah okay really okay you know i'm <laughs> i'm going to take it seriously from now on but there also is a quite a bit of evidence for rebirth from you know, uh, that kind of uh, has emerged over the last 50 and 60 years of people who are actually looking into these things. Uh, 
uh, it is a kind of a modern scientific perspective. Uh, there has always been evidence for rebirth, but the evidence that has been there hasn't. They haven't used kind of modern scientific methods to authenticate it, if you like. And because you know modern science, we tend to dismiss everything that is kind of ancient. That's kind of what happens in modern science. We kind of don't consider that seriously. For that reason, we only people only tend to accept what is acceptable from a modern scientific point of view. I think that is always a bit of a shame because there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of intelligence in the ancient methods of doing things. And sometimes we are a bit conceited about our modern world. We think it is so advanced and so wonderful, but sometimes it's pretty backward, actually, to be honest. That's the way I feel about the modern world. We may be advanced in terms of technology. We may have some good scientific methods, but in terms of spiritual matters, often it is quite backwards. But anyway, there is some uh, evidence from a modern scientific perspective as well. Uh, some of that uh, evidence, one of the evidence that I really uh, like, one of the books that actually presents this evidence, if you want to read a whole book about it, uh, there's a book called, uh, uh, it is called, what is it called again? Uh, it is called uh, Not Indivisible, what is it called again? Um, I can't remember what it's called now. It is a really nice book. It's about 700 pages of very small font yeah, and full of evidence for the idea that the mind can exist apart from the physical body. And the idea that the mind can exist apart from the physical body is really the most important aspect that makes rebirth possible. Yeah, so this is, uh, uh, this is really what this book is full of. And one of the nice pieces of evidence in this book is... Uh, uh, irreducible mind it's called uh, yeah its mind is irreducible to other phenomena so it's called irreducible mind it came out in about 2007 you can find it google it if you like yeah. and one of the pieces of evidence it has in there one of the things i mentioned that was very fascinating yeah, was apparently a fairly common experience for doctors uh, doctors who are uh, looks after old people uh, uh, geriatric doctor, doctors uh, or geriatrics uh, whatever you call that uh, uh, they apparently, there's a very common experience that when people with Alzheimer or some kind of dementia are very close to death, uh, yeah, in the very last moments, uh, they become clear. Yeah, suddenly, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before they pass away, wow, uh, son, daughter, what are you doing here? Nice to see you again, you know, as if it was yesterday, as, as if suddenly they're coming out of this dream state. Uh, they've been gone for a decade and suddenly they come back again. Uh, and that is very fascinating because it is very, very hard to explain if the brain really is all there is. Yeah, there's nothing apart from the brain. The brain has already been damaged for a decade. Why should clarity suddenly arise just before you die? It doesn't make any sense from a modern medical perspective. But from a Buddhist perspective, it actually makes really good sense. Because as you are about to die, consciousness starts to withdraw from the physical body. It starts to become independent of the brain which is damaged. And because of that independence from the brain, you start to be able to perceive in a normal way again. So from a Buddhist perspective, Alzheimer's disease is sometimes you have something that you have to endure for a few years or perhaps a decade or two. But as soon as you die, you are free of all that yeah, and you move on into the future again. And that is a very interesting uh, piece of evidence. Yeah? It has perhaps not been uh, thoroughly enough investigated, uh, but uh, it is certainly something pointing in that direction. Uh. Then, of course, you have the very famous Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was a, a Canadian doctor working at the 
Department of Psychology at the University of Virginia in the United States, um, which is one of the very good universities in the U.S. And he was working there for about 40 years or thereabouts, and he was investigating the memories of children, uh, children remembering past life experiences. And there are some very interesting case studies that he had there. Yeah, uh, it's maybe not, is it final proof? Well, there is perhaps no such thing as final proof, uh, proof but it's certainly indicative that uh, there may be something going on there. Uh, and then, of course, you have all the things about near-death experiences, uh, people who are able to experience things after they have passed away, uh, yeah? when the brain is completely brain-dead, uh, and people still have experiences. Uh, how do you explain that? Uh, yeah, it doesn't, make any, again, make any sense from a modern uh, perspective, but that seems to be happening with certain patients. The brain is completely, there's no measurable activity in the brain whatsoever, and yet people have some of the most powerful experiences they ever had. There are some interesting experiments on drugs, on drug use. And this have been, apparently they have been recently been restarting drug experiments again. And people are given LSD yeah, you get free LSD, you get kind of the chance to do this kind of things. <laughs> many, many monks I know, they used to do this kind of stuff before they became monks. Not me, of course, I'm way too holy to do anything like that. <laughs> no, I'm just messing around. But uh, So uh, the, uh, they give you LSD, yeah? and after they give you LSD, yeah, this is all controlled, so it's, kind of not, it's not dangerous or anything like that. They put you into a scanner, and they scan what's happening in your brain. And as they are scanning what's happening in your brain, you give a commentary on what you're experiencing. Yeah? So you're saying, oh, now, poor, this is mind-blowing, this is really weird, yeah? all of these things are happening. Because when you're on LSD, it's like you know, every kind of perception opens up, and you see all kind of stuff you've never seen before. Uh, and uh, what is interesting about this is that uh, the level of activity in your brain uh, is not correlated to the imaging in the scanner. Uh, usually when you have lots of, brain, lots of things happening in your mind, uh, uh, lots of things happening in your brain, uh, you can see that on the scanner, the whole brain lights up, all these things are happening. Uh, but when you are on drugs, uh, yeah, and you're experiencing all of this stuff, uh, the brain activity goes down. Uh, is an inverse relationship. And again, this makes no sense from a modern perspective, because modern perspective, the vividness of your experience should be directly correlated to the, uh, uh, to the uh, uh, amount of activity in your brain that you can measure through the brain scanning. Yeah. So these are some of the, some of the evidence. Yeah? Not, none of it is kind of absolutely final. There may not be anything absolutely final, but it certainly suggests that there is something going on which we don't really fully understand. Uh, and that already is very interesting. Yeah? It's important to realize that uh, modern science doesn't really understand the correlation between the mind and the physical universe. Uh, yeah? We don't really have a proper understanding of that at all. Uh, so for that reason, it is perfectly okay to be open-minded about things like rebirth, uh, because basically science doesn't know what's going on. Uh, and uh, it's an important point to keep in mind. Uh. Okay. Uh, dear Ajahn, how important is it to make aditana resolutions before formal meditation starts? Uh, is that essential to avoid acting on impulses, e.g. to scratch an itch? <laughs> how do we determine which um, impulses are healthy? Uh, 
Uh, I, if I were you, I wouldn't make any aditana at all because aditana is just an act of will, and I think it's going to hinder your meditation. To be honest, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that sort of thing. There's nothing in the suttas. Aditana means like a resolution, as you say here. Uh, I'm going to not, you know, not do this. Uh, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that because I think it will probably stop you from being able to uh, relax properly. It depends, of course, a little bit about how you make that resolution. Uh, but it can at least have a detrimental effect. There's nothing in the suttas where the Buddha says we should make aditanas. This is like a modern idea of a meditation practice. So much better just to relax and allow the process to happen. Yeah, And then when you do see a physical problem, don't act on it straight away. If you act on it straight away, then it's not such a good idea. Allow it to be there a little bit. And when it becomes problematic, when you find that the pain is something the mind goes back to again and again, and you're not able to get perspective on that pain, that is when you change your posture. That's when you scratch that itch, Yeah, once it becomes really problematic. So don't don't move too fast, because if you move too fast, you're going to be moving all the time. You're not going to be able to sit sit still for two minutes, because your every little impulse becomes a source for movement. So have a little bit of a, a perseverance, otherwise, yeah, you're not going to get anywhere here. So uh, yes, I hope that helps. And again, if you feel that I haven't really answered your questions properly, please try again later on and we'll give it another shot uh, tomorrow or the day after or whatever. Ajahn, I like the idea of ordinary life uh, is to support spirituality. Therefore, when we meditate, there is not much uh, from our ordinary life to distract us. Can you elaborate on this, please? Uh, okay, so what it means is that you make the spiritual life the overarching purpose of what your life is all about. And to be able to do that, you have to understand that the spiritual life is what really matters. This is where you find true meaning. This is where you will find contentment and happiness. This is where you will find an end of suffering. You will not find that in ordinary life. And all you have to do is look around you, look at other people, don't think that you are any different. You are just like everyone else. Is that right? We don't want to hear that. Yeah, we are different. Everyone is a bit different. Well, true, we're all different, but the same kind of basic things are happening inside of us. So because of that, we're also going to have roughly the same kind of life as anyone else. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, I find it very interesting to look at my kind of my brother and my sister and my parents and my family and all of that to see what happened with them, what kind of life they have. And the more I look at them, the more I realize I'm very happy I'm not in a relationship. Yeah, Because even though they're not terribly bad, they're also not all that wonderful. It's kind of this, it's, it's a mixed bag. And I, you know, it actually makes you, makes you very, it makes you realize the uh, the uh, benefits of being or living in a, a single life as a monastic. Actually, it is not bad at all. Uh, uh, and especially when you are a monastic, people often come to you and they say, oh, problems here, problems there, left, right and center. Uh, and you realize this is just a common thing, a common part of ordinary, ordinary life. Uh, so by doing that, you, first of all, you have to realize that the spiritual life is what really gives this life meaning. Uh, everything else is fairly empty here. Uh, 
yeah, uh, relationships in the end they're gonna come. They're gonna come to an end sooner or later. If it's a good relationship, you're gonna grieve. If it's a bad one, you're gonna be happy. But either way, it is unsatisfactory. Yeah, uh, you cannot live for BMWs. Yeah, that's kind of also not really gonna cut cut much ice. Uh, the material world also is not gonna give you that much happiness. It's pretty blooming obvious if you think about it. So all you have to do is just reflect on the world around you and think how unsatisfactory it is uh, and how it always changes, always lets you down, always is problematic. Uh, and the only way you're going to find any real satisfaction uh, is within yourself, in your own inner world. That is where you will find some degree of satisfaction, happiness. Uh. So this is the first thing, yeah, to remember what really matters. And when you, once you get that, uh, then you start to live your life in a different way. Uh. Uh, even though you may choose to have a, you may choose to kind of live as a lay Buddhist, that's perfectly okay. Not everyone can become a monastic. Actually, probably very few people can become a monastic. Uh, but what you do, you prioritize differently in your ordinary life. Uh, yeah, instead of thinking so much about your uh, career, instead of thinking about how much money you make, instead of thinking about all of these worldly things, uh, you start to think about how you live that life. Uh, do I live my family life with kindness? Uh, do I live it with a sense of compassion and understanding? Uh, when, I live, when I go to, to work, uh, do I do my work with a sense of uh, uh, you know, making work into a spiritual practice by doing things that are, again, kind to my co-workers and, and thinking about uh, even our, my work life as a kind of act of generosity, an act of kindness to the world around me. So you make your whole life into an act of kindness uh, because you know that is what the spiritual life is about. Uh. So you start to focus on life in a different way. Huh? Yeah? And then it is much easier to understand why that ordinary life becomes a source that supports uh, your spiritual life. And then when you come here, or you go on a retreat, or you do your meditation practice, or whatever it is, uh, all of that thing that you did in your ordinary life suddenly becomes a source to support what you're doing now. Huh? Yeah, and if you all of that what you did before was just part of your spiritual practice, uh, and you come here to meditate to take the spiritual practice further, there's no need to think about that anymore. You're not doing it because you want to make money. You're not doing it because you want to uh, solve so many problems and issues. You're doing it because it supports what you're doing here and now, uh, and then it all comes together very beautifully. Uh. So get the hierarchy right. Uh. Put the spiritual life on top uh, and everything else comes underneath. Uh, and the magic about that is that everything becomes better. Uh, both your ordinary life and your spiritual life uh, improve as a consequence of that kind of outlook. Uh. Okay, there are a few questions left. I will take the liberty of leaving those until tomorrow. Uh, it's already getting a little bit late. So uh, I'm going to leave you at that so as uh, have a good night have a good night's rest relax and then we'll see you back again tomorrow morning here let's just pay respect to the buddha dhamma sangha <coughs> Arahang Samma Sambudo Bhagava Buddhang Bhagavantang Ambivademi 
Svākātu Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasāmi Supatipanno Bhagavato Savakasango Sangang Namami